Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Robert Gibbs, you know what that music means? I actually have zero idea what that music What it means is the soothsayer is here, the oracle, the Nostradamus of congressional elections. Dave Wasserman Uh of the Cook Report with Amy Walter. Does Dave get his own music? That do we have the first guest with their own intro music? This is it. Yeah, this is it. Putting putting huge pressure on him. I was going to say, Dave, this is um, the bar has now been set exceedingly high. So, um, best of luck. Yeah, man. You know, that's like befitting of, of Olmec from Legend, Legends of the Hidden Temple uh, when I was growing <laughs> up. Exactly. I mean, honestly, if we're being faithful to you, we would have had some fiddler play you in, but because- That's that, sort of what I thought we were going to get, but yeah. then we got this kind of yeah, ominous- but then I got this inspiration, know. and I thought, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, seven primaries today, big focus on California- what are you looking at today? What do you what do you care about today? Well, California, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic because you get half the vote on on election night at midnight East Coast, and then you have to wait another week or two to see, right? Uh, because you know, of those right, mail ballots. ballots, yes, right. I think a week or two you might be generous, right? Well, California is one of those states that when the map first came out, it looked like, oh, this is a great map for Democrats. It looks like. There are six Republican incumbents whose seats got bluer, and pretty much every Democrat is in a seat that's at least as good as it was uh, prior. But, you know, of course, the environment has gotten worse since the map was finalized in December. And Republicans probably just have as many offensive opportunities as Democrats, including, you know, in the Central Valley, in Orange County, where gas prices are the number one issue for voters and yeah, they're huge out there. yeah i mean could could put katie porter mike levin at risk in orange county uh could negate democrats ability to defeat uh people like michelle Steele or young kim um and, and democrats are trying to go on offense against mike garcia uh and and david valadeo in the central valley in northern la county but uh you know, even in a in a year like this, even they could hold on to double digit Biden districts. So uh, we're watching to see who makes it in into these top two primaries. There's always some because they have this jungle primary out yeah. there. We should explain that they, they the top the top uh, four get in or the top two get in. So uh, you could have two Republicans running against each other, two Democrats. You could also have. Uh, you could have more traditional things where conservative Republicans knock a Republican into third place and out of the primary. Yeah, there's some. There's usually some ele- element of of rat fuckery, if I can say that. Uh, and you can, yes, yeah, you can. and and we're seeing Democrats get creative. For example, in Orange County, there is a fairly moderate Republican who uh, you know doesn't like to mention Trump's name, uh, Congresswoman Young Kim, who was elected in 2020. There's also a Trump fanatic running on the Republican side, and this is a pretty evenly divided district. And Greg Raz, the Trump fanatic, he has run in, in that seat before and was actually the, the Republican nominee against Katie Porter in 75% of what is the new district. So you've seen Kevin McCarthy's super PAC actually have to spend money 
to try and kneecap this guy for getting into the top two. And of course, Democrats are trying to prop him up. So, it, you know, the strategy here is is fascinating and fun to watch. Yeah, and Dave, you, you, you've also got, I mean, you mentioned it, you've got a, a few of these sort of newer representatives. So if a Democrat's going to try to knock somebody off before they become a bit more entrenched, this is the election to do it because you've got a few who sort of bucked the national vote and won and picked up districts for Republicans in 2020 uh, inside of California. Yeah, that's right. And Democrats want to show voters that Mike Garcia, uh, the fighter pilot north of L.A., is not the moderate that he says he is. You know, he actually voted against certifying the 2020 election. Uh, David Valadeo, who's one of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, uh, he is facing a challenge on his right in this top two. And although, although I think he'll make it to the general election, Democrats hope that uh, that, you know, redistricting will allow Rudy Salas, an assemblyman from Bakersfield, to, to uh, nab a seat that's been their white whale. Why do you think this is the one? I think this is the one place where Trump hasn't interposed himself against someone who voted uh, for impeachment. Why hasn't he? Yeah, I think it's it's a case where Valadeo is so strong among Republicans because it's a, such a deep blue Hispanic seat in the valley that um, Trump, you know, doesn't believe that his his guy could win. Now, of course, Democrats are trying to prop him up, uh, but it, you know, Trump doesn't like to endorse candidates who look like they're going to lose. And of course, his his track record is already a little bit muddied. Right. So he didn't want to take the risk. There are two other things going on in California today that have nothing to do. We'll get back to to the congressional races and the midterm elections. Uh, there is a recall election in San Francisco. Chesa Boudin, the uh, the district attorney there, is uh, being recalled. He is a uh, progressive. He's championed uh, criminal justice reform policies and sentencing reform policies and uh in, in the midst of uh, concern about crime, he he is uh, facing a recall. That'll be watched. And you have an L.A. primary for mayor uh, where uh, Representative Karen Bass and uh, uh, Caruso, a businessman there, uh, are the top two candidates and may go on to a, a general. Caruso, uh, a former Republican who's trying to, uh, to win there. So a couple of primaries. Uh, of interest there. And there are six other states that have primaries, but uh, are, are there any other primaries that you're looking at, Dave, that we should be concerned about? Well, you know, we've got a, a bunch of other states voting, uh, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, um, New Jersey, pretty much know how those congressional primaries are going to shake out. Although I'm curious to see, you know, some of these uh, more pro-democracy Republicans, what percentage of the vote do they continue to get after we saw Brad Raffensperger uh, emerge in Georgia with over 50% of the vote? You know, how does Chris Smith look in New Jersey, who's you know, going to be the dean of the house? Uh, how does Dusty Johnson, what in South Dakota, what percentage of the vote does he get? He's, you know, a pretty moderate Republican by today's standards. So, uh, you know, these are some deep red seats and we're continuing to gauge just, you know, how how far right has the Republican electorate veered? And of course, in Alaska, we've got this the uh, special primary coming up on the 11th where yeah. Sarah Palin is on the ballot. Never heard of her. 
with a cast of scores and scores of candidates, that's that's also likely to go to a runoff. And they have that ranked choice voting up there. So that'll be interesting. You've got some interesting races too. You know, Ryan Zinke, former uh, head of the Department of Interior, is uh, trying to make a political comeback uh, and run for his old seat as the at-large congressman from Montana. Uh, I think you've also got some interesting yeah, well, state we races. Yeah, we should put a pin in that. That guy had a few problems when he was Secretary of the Interior, kind of a he did. scandal scarred. Well, he's got yes. a few problems now, uh, chiefly that his wife is claiming an Olmstead exemption in Santa Barbara. and uh, Where in Montana is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he reportedly spends quite a bit of time in California rather than Montana. So... Uh, that's come up in the primary, although he'll probably win because he has Trump's endorsement and, and the rest of the field is split. And that's probably the only thing keeping this race on our board rather than solid Republican. It's ironic, too, because like how many how many Montanans just abhor all the Californians that have come in and bought property? And here's a guy who's claiming a homestead exemption in Santa Barbara. Right. Wow. Let, let me ask you a question about Trump. Uh, you know, there's and this this is uh plays as much on the Senate side as the House side. But, you know, with all of the things that are stacked up against Democrats uh, right now, and um, and you've moved a whole passel of, of uh, races uh, toward the Republicans in the last few weeks, um, is Trump, does Trump create uh, any opportunities for Democrats here? Is he, is he, um, is he, going to force the nomination of some candidates who are more beatable? You know, the range of what's competitive in the House has narrowed so much that there really aren't that many cases where, you know, the the, the brand of Republican that emerges is likely to have a large impact uh-huh. on the general election result. Now, you know, I looking at redistricting, I think it's thinned the the number of toss-up districts uh, you know, by perhaps a quarter. Uh the one case that stands out to me as a place where Republicans really could throw away general election is in Michigan's third district, uh, where you've got Peter Beyer uh, under threat from the Trump endorsed uh, Ben Carson acolyte, um, John, John Gibbs. Any relation? Uh, <laughs> no, ironically, my brother's name is John Gibbs, and occasionally I'll send him stories from this guy just to needle him. But no, no, um, no relation. Yeah, if, if Meyer goes down in that primary, I think the Democrat Hillary Skolton becomes the favorite in the general election. Otherwise, it's, it probably stays as a toss up or, or even leaning to Meyer, who's obviously pro impeachment. One other thing to put a couple of races on folks' radar screen, and then I want to ask Dave a little bit about what you brought in. Uh, first of all, I mean, we've got uh, probably a competitive gubernatorial race in New Mexico. Republicans are going to pick a nominee for. And ironically, one we've not mentioned uh, it was somebody that we spent a lot of time talking about last year. Gavin Newsom is on the ballot today <laughs> uh, and will soon probably th- this November be easily reelected. Yeah, the, le- the least interesting story on the California ballot today is probably Gavin Newsom. He- he's. In a non-competitive situation, now. which is sort of remarkable, and you know, again, I'm I'm not trying to start any rumors, but I I don't think that uh, the governor's mansion in Sacramento is uh, the last house that he wants to live in uh, publicly. Um, I do want to ask though, Dave, you act sort of mentioned it. You moved a bunch of races 
uh, from toward the Republicans. Give us a sense of what you're seeing. We always, you know, we certainly see the national polling. What what are some of these congressional races showing about the overall political atmosphere and environment right now? First, you, you know, you mentioned something interesting about the L.A. mayor's race, and um, I think it is a sign of the times that we're talking about Republicans or former Republicans who are able to cobble together coalitions to be competitive in some historically very blue places. You know, as we've seen a spike in crime and and uh, concerns about about you know defunding police and so forth, we've seen Republicans win in Seattle, even, you know, obviously McAllen, Texas. Uh, and now we're even talking about Rick Caruso in LA. And, you know, even though Eric Adams is a Democrat, he ran pretty hard against the progressive left in New York. And so, you know, that it, it, the fact that we're even talking about those kinds of developments tells you what kind of year um, this and cycle this is shaping up to be. We should point out in those places, you know, crime, homelessness, are huge issues. And these are right. the issues that these candidates are seizing on. And it's one of the dynamics of this, uh, of this election year. Anyway, I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. Yeah. No, my, my basic philosophy on the house races right now is that pretty much anything that's a single digit Biden seat, um, is, is a toss up and, and pretty much anything that is a Trump one seat, uh, favors Republicans. The the one Trump one seat held by a Democrat that we still have in our toss-up column is Marcy Kaptur in Toledo, who has a unique ability to overperform the right. top of the ticket and, you know, is is regarded as St. Marcy for delivering so many federal funds uh, to Toledo over the years and has an opponent who, you know, painted his entire lawn in a Trump flag uh, and was at and and called for for states to secede from the union. Um Pretty much anyone, any Democrat who's sitting in, you know, a, a Biden plus one, a plus 10 seat, you know, I think their odds are, are pretty much 50 50 of, of winning reelection. And even some Democrats who are in Biden 10 to 15 districts are going to have tough races. And when I look at our, at what separates, you know, just a good Republican night in November from a, a from a tsunami, it's these places like, uh, you know, Arizona four, uh, Greg Stanton or, you know, Illinois six, uh, Sean Caston, Illinois 13, the downstate district that Roddy Davis is vacating, Indiana one, um, Frank Mervan. And, and so it's these types of races that, you know, could, could come into the central core battlefield and, and turn this from a 25 seat night to a 35 seat night. X, now I know why you played that ominous sort of music in the beginning. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It could be interpreted as funereal if you were a, a Democrat. So you talk about what could turn it from 25 to 35, but there's been a scenario where it could it goes in the other direction. I mean, and at what point, uh, I think that uh, Doug Sosnick was on last week and he makes the point yep. that generally people make up their minds relatively early that their minds don't change that much during the course of the summer and fall. But, and how much did that influence your thinking? I mean, how much do you think is baked in here? Yeah, I think a lot is baked in, uh, in terms of the national environment. Uh, we've never seen a president drastically improve their, their rating between the beginning of a midterm year 
and November in the history of, of Gallup polling or other polling. But, you know, that doesn't mean that some races can't take a turn, particularly Senate races, right? Because those place a higher premium on candidate quality uh, than House races, which, which you know, voters might pay a 30-second attention to. Now, the, you know, I think abortion and, and overturning Roe v. Wade could be of, of benefit to Democrats in a few isolated ways. Number one, I think there's likely to be more campus activism than, mm -hmm. than there would be otherwise. I mean, the political atmosphere on campus prior to this was pretty dead. And I do think you will see more voter registration drives, uh, which could help Democrats who represent uh, you know, big campus populations. I'm thinking about people like Alyssa Slotkin, who represents Michigan State, or Katie Porter, um, you know, UC Irvine. I also think it's likely to make the biggest difference in in races where the Republican nominee has adopted really, really uh, um, far right positions, extensive flat bans, um, you know, with no, no exceptions. Yeah. So, you know, when I interviewing Republican candidates, uh, you know, Cassie Garcia was was someone I met with last week running in the Henry Cuellar seat. Uh, she favors a flat ban Down with no exceptions. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, could that come into play? Obviously, Henry Cuellar is one of the last Democrats in the House, probably the only one who considered, who still considers himself pro-life, but he favors exceptions. And that could come up in the general election. You know, uh, just to, just before we move on, on that particular race, he just won a uh, very, very closely contested primary with a progressive candidate, uh, Cisneros there. She, she's called for a recount, but 200 votes is actually a lot to make up in a recount. Queer actually added votes in the canvas that they did prior to her asking for this recount. So it'll be interesting to see if, so as you said, not an easy gap to make up, even though 200 doesn't sound like a lot. But my question is one of the other elements of this primary season are these intramural battles between progressives and moderates uh, within the party. How, how do you, how, and it seems like both sides have scored some victories. How do you see that shaping up? Yeah. You know, the last big primary night we had, we saw a number of more establishment Democrats like, you know, Valerie Fushi in North Carolina prevail over progressive opponents. Uh, but we also saw Summer Lee in Pittsburgh who right. ran on a progressive platform and was backed by, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and, and, and others. Uh, you know, it's unclear whether she is squad level or whether she is more, uh, more of a Pramila Jayapal. And I do think there is an, a difference in yeah. these house races, right? And so she was able to prevail despite Mike Doyle, the outgoing Democrat endorsing Steve Irwin, uh, and, and that was a very close race. We also saw Jamie McLeod Skinner defeat Kurt Schrader yeah. in Oregon. And I think in that case, you know, it's hard to argue that Kurt Schrader was much of an incumbent because 53% of the district was new to him. McLeod Skinner had run a really, you know, grassroots anti-corporate campaign for Congress in 2018 in the bulk of the district that was added, ran up big margins in bed. And she's someone who has more of a rural populist image in the, the vein of, say, John Tester from Montana than an AOC or Rashida Tlaib type bent. And, uh, you know, again, I do think there, there are shades of this, right? It's not black or white. So she was able to, to beat 
Schrader, despite a, a fundraising disadvantage. And that race is going to be very interesting in the fall. It's been a while since we've had a genuinely competitive house race in Oregon, and we'll see one. But then again, you know, Henry Cuellar hanging on in, in Texas shows that some Democrats can succeed in more culturally conservative areas by explicitly and aggressively running against AOC and, and, and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey. So, Gibbs, you know when you go online and you buy something and they ask for a promo code and you never have one? I never have one. Where do I get one? Well, I'll tell you where you get one. That's the beauty of Honey. Thanks to Honey manually searching for those coupon codes. Well, that's a thing of the past. Honey's a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. It supports over 30,000 stores online, ranging from tech and gaming products that I know you use to popular fashion brands like I use, and even food delivery. Which we, which we both, both use. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, look, I mean, th- this is a great thing and it can save you money the next time you're on the internet searching for something. Are you looking for a, a new fancy pair of headphones like you've got right there, Axe? You could find it and save some money. Absolutely. And you can get a real discount on these just by using Honey. I used to ignore that promo code. Now it fills in. I get the discount. It's easy to use. Uh, it's helpful. And again, in a world in which we're all concerned about inflation, it saves you money. Imagine you're shopping at one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. And you can add Honey to your iPhone too. Just Enable it on Safari, and you can find savings on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. I'd never recommend something I don't use. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hacks. That's joinhoney.com slash hacks. couple of questions, Dave. You, you, the Cuellar race that you mentioned in, in Texas is, I think you guys have listed as a toss-up, right? Right. Would, would that have been different? Would you have rated that race differently if Cisneros had won? You know, we've debated this internally. I, I, you know, my feeling is that Cisneros would have been a, an underdog in the general election. Now I view Cuellar as a slight favorite, but perhaps not by enough to move that seat into lean D, right. at least not not without more evidence and not without more clarification on Azerbaijan and his his uh, uh, role in in, in right. whatever it is the FBI is investigating. And then broadly speaking, I mean, I think th- this is sort of a given, but I'd love to get your take on it, which is overall, it, do you expect that the next Democratic caucus it certainly will be, be not just because of the subtractions of people like a Stephanie Murphy in Florida not running for reelection, but you're going to have a more progressive House caucus as a whole um, because of some of the additions that you just mentioned, as well as the subtractions of people not running again uh, for political environment reasons or for whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, 
you know, are we going to see the squad expand from its current membership of six? You know, Greg Kassar in Texas, yes, probably, uh, you know, could it get closer to 10? Uh, you know, in terms of the real hardliners, they'll grow by a little bit. Um, you'll have a higher percentage of the, of the caucus that identifies as progressive without necessarily being obstructionist. But, you know, when I go to the Blue Dog website right now, and it's, you know, it already can fit in a small conference room, but man, I think it's going to fit in a phone book after this, a phone booth after this election. You've got, uh, Stephanie Murphy leaving, Tom right. Halloran's the underdog for re-election. Jim Cooper, a founding member, obviously got redistricted out in Tennessee. Carolyn Bordeaux lost her primary in Georgia. In Georgia yeah. So, and, and then, you know, when you look at the House Ag Committee, and Jim Costa is really the, the last Democrat standing on the House Ag Committee who has, you know, an intricate familiarity with commodities based in his district. So, wow, this is going to be a, a much more urban and suburban Democratic caucus. I mean, one of the stories that bears watching this year going into 2023 is the nature of both caucuses and the sort of collapse of the middle uh, because you've seen so many establishment Republicans retire. You've seen some of these int intramural battles. I think one of the concerns that McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, must have now that he has the coveted and lusted after endorsement of Donald Trump, now he has to worry about being able to control his caucus. Has that ever been a problem? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it could be, a depending on the margin in the House, it is a larger or smaller problem and, and what you see is him really trying to expand his reach here dave to oh uh, oh yeah and this is why you're seeing his super PAC get involved in a lot of these races in early stages rather than just the fall right you know mccarthy is engaged very closely uh in, in a stealth campaign in many of these primaries and you know he he didn't really have the guts to to come out there and campaign against Madison Cawthorn. I think part of him thinks that it'd be detrimental to his own cause uh, to insert himself directly into many of these primaries, given that the base has mixed feelings about the, the leadership of the party in Washington. But there's no doubt, I mean, there's no secret that McCarthy desperately wanted to boot Cawthorn from Congress, would love to get rid of, of Matt Gates, uh, but still sees Trump as a net benefit to the party. Yeah, the FBI may may take care of that, but I don't I don't think there's any doubt for both of you that you're going to end up with sort of the progressive caucus versus the freedom caucus uh, dominating Congress on the House side going forward. By the way, um, Dave, I can see maybe you you guys adding a a graphic in uh, in the Cook Political Report, maybe a thermometer that says. Our Democrats squad level. I, I can just see you figuring out how to uh, to fill that thermometer up. I, I love that term, squad level Democrat. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll work on it before we we leave this the whole issue of the midterms. Talk about the redistricting process because it's it's had some interesting twists and turns. There was a point when it looked like Democrats were going to do far better than anticipated, and then the courts and commissions stepped in. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And what would you put the net number at, Dave? Yeah. Look, I, I think we're looking at a Republican gain of probably three seats uh, on our scorecard from redistricting, um, plus or minus two, uh, which is a reversal from the Democratic gain of four seats that we were expecting at the end of February. Look, at, at back three, four months ago, 
we were saying, look, this is going to be a horrible midterm for Democrats, but the silver lining for them is redistricting, that they've gotten all these favorable maps from commissions like California and New Jersey and Michigan, and they've, they've got great court decisions from, um, from North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And then it was like total whiplash. And the judge in Maryland struck down Democrats gerrymander there. Uh, obviously, in Alabama, the Supreme Court blocked a, a ruling by a federal panel that was made up of two, uh, two out of three were Trump appointed judges that said that the Alabama map was uh, discriminatory against black voters. We're likely to see the same case in, Al- in uh, Louisiana get Louisiana, folded into yeah. that before the Supreme Court. But the biggest changes to, to my priors were the following three states. First of all, o- uh, Ohio, where Republicans just simply ran out the clock on legal challenges to their 2022 gerrymander, which could give them 13 out of the 15 districts in Ohio, um, basically, you know, thumbing their nose at the state Supreme Court. And then in obviously New York, where uh, the yep. state's top court struck down Democrats gerrymander, that was the biggest blow by far. And then in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis overpowered his own legislature to draw uh a 20 to eight gerrymander that's, that looks likely to be. That's how fact. he, that's how he rolls, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And so you yeah. add these, these all together and now redistricting is just another, uh, another obstacle to, to Democrats and, and, you know, likely to pour fuel on the fire. No doubt that, that sort of plus four in February to minus three in, um, which sounds like we're on the golf network all of a sudden. Um, in 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 the current state, I would say though, Dave, what would you have expected at the very beginning of the cycle? If I would have said, or if somebody would have said, "Hey, as a result of all the state legislative victories that we've seen, kind of over the last decade, Republicans are only going to net three. Now that doesn't take into account, obviously, they've strengthened a lot of seats, but right. I, I would I would have been surprised at the beginning of this cycle to find that the net number for Republicans was only three. Yeah, you know, when we launched our scorecard before any states had drawn lines, we were at, you know, Republicans plus two and a half. So we're pretty much back to where we started. But if you compare it to what it looked like in February and March, right. obviously the the string of legal setbacks for Democrats has been staggering. And, you know, this is hard to get out of for Democrats. Once these lines are drawn. Yeah, it's a 10-year it, deal. Yeah, you know, it's it's really really hard to to get out of it uh unless Democrats win a lot of governorships, uh unless they're able to appoint a lot of more moderate to liberal people on state supreme courts. But man, the US Supreme Court has really not, taken- not f- yeah, not friendly to you're not the first person that said, man, the Supreme Court. Speaking oh, yeah. of, you mentioned you mentioned abortion as, as something that could potentially change some of the dynamic. We've got on Thursday, the beginning of the January 6th investigative committee's primetime hearings. Uh, I know there's been a lot of scuttlebutt in the news uh, about this the last couple of days. Do you see that dynamic uh, playing a large role in changing the political environment or 
the campus activity, Democrats' excitement uh, in participating in the election. How do you see or factor that in as you sit here right now? Well, at the risk of sounding cliche, I think the median voter in this midterm election is a 50-year-old suburban woman with a with an associate's degree who is pro-vaccine, doesn't believe the 2020 election was stolen, but inflation and the cost of living is pretty much overwhelming any other concern. And although they believe what happened- And, on and Jan- her name January is 6th, good. Give us right. her name. <laughs> Linda. Uh, and, and, you know, she, she believes that January 6th was really, really bad, but that those who her, who perpetrated it directly, uh, the insurrectionists who actually went into the Capitol, you know, are being dealt with in appropriate ways by the judiciary. They believe that for all of the hyperbole about, uh, uh, about, um, you know, election fraud and, uh, new voting laws that the 2020 election was generally disposed of fairly, that uh, the new laws on the books will not threaten their, their right to vote in 2022. Uh, and they, they're, they're not mainlining Fox or MSNBC or CNN. And for that type of voter, I, you know, I don't think they're going to be tuning in to the January 6th hearings. I really want to talk about this from a, it's just a strategic sure. standpoint. That's why I set you up. Thank you. Str- strategic <laughs> stand, the checks in the mail. The str- Get comfortable, from a, Wasserman. From a strategic standpoint, because it's very, very clear what the Republican strategy is. Uh, and we have a little clip, I think, from uh, Kevin McCarthy over the weekend on this subject. What we have found with one-party rule of Democrats taking over the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they use the power to go after their political opponents instead of bringing down gasoline prices. Today, it has now doubled since the gasoline price since President Biden has taken office. Are they going to have any hearings mm-hmm. on that? Are they going to secure our border? Are they going to stop fentanyl from coming across? Are they going to let our parents have a say yeah. in their kids' education? This is the role that Congress should be having, but not under Nancy Pelosi and one-party rule of Democrats. So there, I mean, you, you, and you hear Republican after Republican, their strategy is very clear. This is a partisan exercise and they should be focused on these bread and butter issues of, uh, cost of living, gas prices and so on. And instead, uh, they are trying to relitigate, uh, what happened in, in 2020. Let's not also forget the great clause at the beginning there, the irony of, you know, they're using the yes. power of the office against their political opponents. I mean, right. can you imagine the, what, the chutzpah to, to, to make that accusation given four years of Trump is, um, is rich. Let's also add this. Fast forward to 2023 and 2024 and Republicans have taken control of the House and perhaps Senate. And you've got Trump running for president again saying that he's going to free January 6th political prisoners. And right. you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene and and others who are in power uh, in the majority on the Republican side saying similar things. I think Linda is concerned about that. So, yeah. you know, this is this is more of a long-term problem for Republicans. Yeah. Is Linda sitting next to you? Where's Linda? I can't. I, <laughs> I think there is a real challenge for Democrats here and how they handle these hearings, because I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is a deadly serious thing, and not because of what happened in 2020, but what's going to happen in 2022, 23, 24, uh, and uh, because there are forces astride this country that 
are still of the insurrectionist mindset, uh, and they're being encouraged and cultivated by the former president as he plans to run for president again. But I picked up the the I, I looked at the, uh, the 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 Times this morning, and the headline was "January Six Hearings Give Democrats a Chance to Recast Midterm uh, Chances or Midterm Message." And in it, there's this quote, which 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 is I think a deadly way for Democrats to position in any way this these hearings. They should be about the deadly serious nature of the subject and not the midterm elections. But here's uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, the Democratic campaign, congressional campaign chair. When these hearings are over, he says, voters will know how irresponsibly complicit Republicans were in attempting to toss out their vote, just how far Republicans will go to gain power for themselves. This should not be cast that way. This should not be cast as an exercise in positioning the Republicans for the fall. This should not, I mean, the more that that happens, the more it's going to look like an abstract kind of, uh, you know, Washington circus. And I think that members of the committee ought to be really sensitive to that because there is, I mean, there's a real story to be told here, not just about what happened, but about what may happen in the future. And uh, that should not be obscured by, you know, the story sites that they hired a television producer and so on to help them package their presentations and so on. And, and I'd be worried, you know, if I were yeah. on that committee about whether this thing lands the way it's supposed to. Look, I think your fears are well-founded. I thought the story was a little overwritten. Um, I think if you just read Maloney's quote without the wrapper of a few of these other things, I don't, I don't know that that would, I don't, I didn't read it as, 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 as quite as stark a quote as I thought I was about to hear. Um, I, I do think it is hard to have these hearings and talk about what happened in 2020. And if there is even more evidence that Republicans were looking to stage a coup, I think it will be hard to place blame on somebody other than the other side. So I, I don't, I, I, but I agree with you. The power of these hearings is not going to be because they were they they came out well produced by TV or things like that. They're gonna it's going to be the evidence that we haven't heard. It's going to be the the evidence that we're hearing again and the impact that that has and its ability to travel and reach a voter like Linda who wasn't that concerned or was concerned, but it wasn't at the top of her list. But the point, though, I'm making is that they, they really need to emphasize the prospective nature of the threat, that this is an ongoing problem. Uh, this is an ongoing concern. I think that, look, I said a long time ago that, uh, you know, this is like a game of Wordle and the word is Trump and we could spell it a long time ago. And I think that's going to be clearer here. But, you know, there's more to this. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I hope that that they will get to sort of the the root of it all and uh and the fact that this is an ongoing kind of threat but to listeners the, the today's wordle is not trump it's obviously linda <laughs> let's take a short break and hear from our sponsors this podcast is sponsored by better help you know gibbs i don't have to tell you life can be overwhelming these days and many people are burned out and they don't even know it they just feel it symptoms can include you know lack of motivation a feeling of helplessness 
of being trapped, attachment, fatigue. We've both given the work that we've done and the things that we've lived. We've both experienced that kind of feeling. And it's so important to get help. Yeah, it really is. We associate burnout with work, but that's really not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feel burned out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. Look, X, we all know people that are struggling with this. You know, there have been times in my life when I've dealt with some really, really hard things. And therapy has been really, really helpful. The ability to go and talk something through with someone is uh, really important. And now you don't even have to go anywhere. Yeah, it's great. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And this is great. Hacks on Tap listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash hacks. Yeah, take advantage of it, folks. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hacks. There's another woman that we should discuss in all this, and her name's Liz. And I don't know if it's going to be a great look for Democrats politically to have basically adopted Liz Cheney as a, as a star on this commission when she's essentially setting up to lose her primary by 30 or more points in Wyoming. Now, obviously, Wyoming's a 70% Trump state, but do most, most people know that? Yeah, Liz Cheney, we should point out, there was a recent poll uh, from the Club for Growth that showed her down by 30 uh, in that congressional district. And yeah, I mean, I think she's going to She's going to, I mean, I look, I think she deserves great credit for, uh, you know, political courage is defined by risking your career for something. She's doing that and she deserves great credit for that. Uh, but this is, you know, she knew she was taking a calculated risk when she, when she went on this committee. And if the Republicans successfully position it more as a political exercise than as a search for truth. That's not going to help her cause there. I, I really believe this is important. I don't want to say, I don't want you guys, I don't want anyone listening to think that I don't think what they're doing is important or that they're not doing a thorough job or that, you know, any of that stuff. Yeah. And she's content to be, be a martyr. If you wind back the clock even further, though, I think it's fascinating. I sat down with her in 2020 and, and her father. And she had a fork in the road to run for Senate. She could be, she could have a six-year lease on a Senate seat in Wyoming right now. And instead, she's going down to a massive defeat in a a re-election race for the House seat. She could have been another vote for conviction in the Senate. And it's just amazing the difference that choice made. Timing in politics is everything. A couple of points on this. I mean, I I think it's, um, you've seen some reporting in the last couple of days that there have been some arguments inside the committee between Raskin and Cheney around what does, what, what, what does this portend in terms of Raskin wanting to use this to uh, eliminate the electoral college, uh, to pass stronger voter reform and, and, and Cheney sort of pushing back against that. The one thing I would say to you, um, Wasserman, I'm not entirely sure if she loses by 30, I'm not sure that dense Democrats, I think in many ways it would 
it very much be exactly what Democrats expect will happen, which is somebody stepped out of line in a you know with an impeccable Republican name, conservative in every sense of the word, but stepped out of the line on Trump and lost uh, lost by a lot. I think that's in many ways the narrative Democrats believe and see is happening inside of the Republican Party each and every day. The other thing that's going on right now is the. Uh these private discussions among members of the Senate uh, about some sort of gun legislation in in the wake of Valdi and and Buffalo and uh, and uh, this rash of mass shootings that we saw uh, over this weekend. Dave, do you are there suburban districts where this issue uh, is going to uh, be a factor? Does it get wrapped into uh, the choice debate? Are there moderate Republican voters who who, who might be on the bubble who, who are going to be impacted by this? And to add to that, before you give a good answer, I want to interrupt you to give an even better one, which is uh, walk us through a little bit, too, of what happened with Chris Jacobs in New York. To me, that was, speaking of, of whiplash, you know, a guy who shares part of Buffalo, comes out for an assault weapons ban, and less than a week later drops his bid for reelection. This is a guy who in 2020 was endorsed by the NRA. Yeah, we see a lot of white flag waving um, on the Republican side. Okay, look, Liz Cheney is is running. Fred Upton and Chris Jacobs are not, uh, and, and Adam Kinzinger is not. You could go down down the list. Chris Jacobs is really one of the the um, the, the last true moderates who was running for reelection on on the GOP side. And I think what's confounding uh, about his choice so late in the election cycle is that he had the personal money to be able to withstand this. Uh, he's basically self-funded his races thus far and has had the you know, the, the key backing of, of local committee leaders, some of whom abandoned him uh, after the stance. But, you know, he's still at a path. Uh, and the fact he's not running at this seat is likely to turn over to Carl Palladino. Yes. That's a... Big, big switch. Yeah, yeah. Way, way, way over over to the right. Self-funders have an ability to look at things on return on investment, and he may have decided that the return on his personal investment here was uh, was not on the positive side of his uh, either his wealth or his uh, congressional service ledger. Dave, so talk about this as a potential issue. You know, Nate Cohn uh, wrote a piece last week about uh, why – Guns always seems like a better issue than they turn out to be, just as an electoral issue. Do you think it'll be different this time? Well, I, I don't think it will be broadly different. Uh, and Nate Cohn laid out the evidence of why this this doesn't translate uh, at the ballot box. And you know, I know that's that's puzzling for Democrats. The one thing I I, I will say, Democrats uh, have probably done a poorer job in the past of putting the right messengers forward on the issue um, than they are now. I, I think it is beneficial to their side of the argument that the storyline is John Cornyn and Chris mm-hmm. Murphy are negotiating on this rather than Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden holding a press conference on this every single day, right? Mm-hmm. Because if there's going to be movement on this issue, it's got to be gun owners who make the case to gettable Republican and independent voters to move to their side in a, in, in a, uh, a very narrowly tailored way to prevent 18 to 21 year olds from being able to buy semi-automatic weapons, right? 
Yeah. I presume that the reason that uh, McConnell appointed Cornyn to negotiate was that he trusted him to do some narrowly tailored thing and that it would supply cover for other Republicans who wanted to support it because Cornyn has impeccable credentials with the uh, with the gun lobby, with the NRA, with gun owners. Um, and we'll see. We'll see if we we'll see if they get there. They seem to be moving down that line, but we don't know. McConnell here is crafty because you know he, to your point, David, he understands that if if Cornyn is there, it it isn't something that that has the ability to to really wedge his caucus in, in in a in a big way. I think he's trying to essentially give the space for everybody to be what they need to be for. Um, I'll be interested to see, you know, you've seen th- this looks like a, a, a coalition that Murphy and, and others um, are are working towards with the goal of getting 10 Republicans, which is what you would need. Um, Pat Toomey said a couple of days ago th- that he was looking for something and that the Republicans were looking for something that would get half of the caucus, uh, which to me seems like an extraordinarily high bar uh, for for Republicans, given the fact that the NRA has already come out and said they're opposed to red flag laws. And Cornyn himself has come out and said, raising the, the age on on the purchase of guns uh, and assault weapons and universal background checks is likely off the table. So it'd be interesting to watch the parameter here. I think what Toomey is saying is if we're going to jump, we're going to jump in a big, large group. Yeah. And I think what Cornyn is trying to do is fashion something that's narrow enough that that they can persuade people to to jump in a big large group, and probably as we're speaking right now, they're assembling for their for their weekly caucus luncheon. And I bet you after that luncheon, they'll have a sense of uh, how how far how how far they're going to go. Regardless of how this shakes up legislatively, this is an issue that allows Democrats to reclaim the law enforcement mantle yes. in some uh-huh. way. Yes. and I think they've done a poor job of that in the last four to six years. Think of how many sheriffs active and retired of all different races or police chiefs there are who are willing to speak out on this issue um, in a way that could allow Democrats to blunt the criticism being lobbed from the other side. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Speaking of Pennsylvania's Pat Toomey, Mossman, you've covered a lot of races. What do you make of what you've seen in the way John Fetterman and his campaign have handled his recent health issue uh, as he now faces renowned heart doctor, or use renowned in uh, quotation marks, renowned heart doctor Mehmet Oz, who's now the official Republican nominee. I don't think many people had on their bingo card that the Republican nominee would be on the campaign trail before uh, the Democratic nominee. Uh, I think it's unhelpful in the sense that it shifts the ships attention away from Oz. Democrats yeah. would love this election to be a referendum on Mehmet Oz and the questionable advice he's dispensed and his Cliffside Park, New Jersey uh, uh, mansion and the fact that he's still on the voter rolls as of a couple of weeks ago in Bergen County, New Jersey, right? So to the extent this becomes more of a neutralized race of here's a guy who looks like a pro wrestler, but is he physically fit enough to do the job uh, given cardiomyopathy and, and the stroke before the, uh, before primary election day versus a carpet bagger. It is detrimental. Fetterman's pretty, he, he, I think he has underestimated his popularity 
in that state, and particularly his popularity with some sort of unconventional Democratic voters. But I, I think there is a just a basic straightforwardness that was lacking there. He, he obviously no means he's now said in retrospect, I almost died. That wasn't the message that they were delivering the days before the election. And uh, they still haven't exactly uh, been clear. I don't know, honestly, at the end of the day, whether how much people in Pennsylvania are hanging on this issue. And if he's fine by election day, right. I don't think this is going to be a, a big factor. But they don't, they're not going to get gold stars for uh, transparency on this. But he does live in Pennsylvania, which is a plus. Yeah, and 99% of Democrats, uh, arguably higher, would vote for someone who's in a coma with a D next to their name over <laughs> Mehmet Oz. Well, by the way, that's not an official prediction. That no. is not a prediction. Uh, <laughs> no, exactly. To your point, I think the longer term, we, we don't know enough about whether this issue will impact the overall politics of the race. The one advice I would give, one piece of advice I would give to the Fetterman campaign and to everybody else if it looks like you're hiding something, voters are smart and they'll think you're hiding something. It's not that hard. And I would say none of this stuff may be good, but get out there and talk about it. Shape it. Own it. John Fetterman is not the first uh, out of shape man to ignore the advice of his doctor. And Why are you I, looking at me? I, <laughs> I, I'm not naming any names. I promise. Uh, but no, th this is, you know, I, I think this is something that they could have and should have handled better. And I think they're going to have an opportunity to handle it better in the future. And I think that may go a long way to mitigating it as a political issue. Now you can go to the mailbag. Well, we don't have any time, Robert. So, <laughs> all right, we'll try and get a few questions in here in the few minutes we have left. <laughs> yes. It's listener Dave, a guy named David, not, neither you nor I, but another guy named David, asked uh, relative to the Liz Cheney situation, if Liz Cheney loses her primary, do you think Democrats will pull their candidates, similar to what Karl Rove and George Bush did for Joe Lieberman in 2006, allowing Cheney to run as an independent versus the Republican nominee in the general? Well, look, even if there would be a mechanism. You can't. Right. The math doesn't work in Wyoming. This yeah. is a 70% Trump state, and it's not exactly a lot of that support was Trump light. It was MAGA heavy. There's also, there's also a sore loser rule there that prohibits you from running in the primary and then running as an independent in the general. So nice try, Dave. The other Dave, not you and me. It's not going to work. Axe, I got one for you from Anton. If Joe Biden, in his heart of hearts, knows that he is not going to run for reelection, and since... Vice President Harris's polling numbers do not make her the obvious choice to win the nomination. What is the best time and why for him to make that announcement? Look, I've said this. I, look, I think he thinks right now that he's running. He feels he's the strongest candidate against Trump. But it would be best for the Democratic Party if it turns out that he's not going to run or if he knows he's not going to run to make that announcement earlier rather than later to allow other candidates to emerge because there's clearly going to be a primary. And the earlier that he makes his intentions known, uh, the more other people can get in. If, in fact, he's going to run and he knows he's going to run and he's confident that he can run, this is a moot point. But early is better. If he waits until the fall of 2023 to tell people he's not running, that creates a, a kind of a mess for the Democratic Party. Robert Kareem wants to know, why isn't the United States 
trying to do a gun buyback program like they did in Australia, people certainly could use the money. Yeah, well, hard to argue that people couldn't use the money, Kareem. I would say you have seen in some bigger cities, um, mostly with Democratic mayors and Democratic city councils, have authorized gun buyback programs in the past. Uh, and they've been successful. Uh, and, and you get a lot of guns, uh, you recover a lot of guns. I think the challenge to do something like Australia did is the same challenge you have in passing anything around gun control or gun safety. And that is th- there's a, there's a real institutional, uh, wall to anything happening. Uh, even a weakened NRA still has enormous power. Uh, and we've seen it and we've talked about it here on the podcast. It is it's hard to see big change coming on guns, given where the Republican base is uh, and given where the interest group, even as damaged as the NRA is with bankruptcies and investigations, uh, they still hold uh, an enormous amount of power inside the Republican Party. And it, it's it it pushes against any type of change. It would be a good idea. We've got more guns in this country than we have people. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see a gun buyback program, certainly nationally, anytime soon. Yeah, it's a shame because they collected, what, 650,000 of these weapons, and they saw a uh, concomitant drop in violent crime. Uh, they were certainly gun crime. So, But I agree. I, I agree with you. Dave Wasserman, it's always good to see you, brother. Hey, thanks so much. It's always a lot of fun. Watch his Twitter feed. Read him in the Cook Report with Amy Walter. He is the man. And, uh, well, uh, at the end of every uh, election night, he says, I've seen enough and makes his projections. You can never see enough of Dave Wasserman. Well, I look forward to the next time at Manny's. Yes, Manny's in Chicago will will be there. And Dave, uh, before we play the ominous exit music, please tell Linda we said hi. (laughs) I will. All right, guys. Well, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, guys. Thanks, Dave. Talk soon.